Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. You are in the cave. We were born before the wind. Also younger than the sun. And our bonnet boat was one as we sailed into the mystic. The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. Welcome. In this episode, we continue to explore the theme of resilience in the lives of those who reached down deep to discover courage and strength as they faced their worst nightmare. In our last episode, we met Louise, a single mom who fell under the influence of a manipulating psychopath. He cut her off from those she loved and took away everything she had until fate intervened and took him away in a police cruiser. But Louise discovered he had not taken from her the one thing she needed most to survive, her love, which enabled her to rebuild the life he had sought to ruin. But what if our enemy doesn't come to us in the guise of a flesh-and-blood opportunist? What if our enemy truly is within? A fast-talking con artist beguiling us with overblown schemes and grandiose promises? What if it's the delusions of our own mind that betray us, cutting us off from our loved ones and robbing us of our dreams? That was Alan Cooper's experience. He had finally found himself far from his Calgary home in Japan, where he taught English to junior high school students. He was good at it. He was putting down roots. He was imagining a career as a translator in a culture he loved, until he was assaulted by an assailant who had been lurking in the shadows, bipolar disorder. In a manic instant, he lost everything. Through his agonizing return to what would become his new normal of medication and peer support groups, Alan found within himself not only the will to live, but also the courage to dream new dreams and to build for himself a new life. This is his story. Alan, you and I met in a writing program where we were both, as it turns out, working on our memoirs. And each of our memoirs, different from each other, were both dealing with painful transitions in our life. And I was wondering if we might start by having you read from your prologue. So people are sure. kind of oriented to your memoir, which was called Brain Betrayal, The Alan They Never Met. Sure, I can do that. I actually haven't read this in a very long time, so... <laughs> well, be the... entertained by your own words. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my book is called Brain Betrayal, The Alan They Never Met. It was the happiest and the worst day of my life. Finally, I had discovered what it felt like to experience pure joy 
and be truly comfortable with who I was as a person. I knew what I wanted, and I had no doubt that I was on the verge of acquiring tremendous wealth and prosperity. All the adversity I had been through that had been dragging me down for years had completely dissolved. My previously untapped boundless intelligence pumped unencumbered energy through my veins. I was sure I was on the verge of experiencing my own beautiful destiny. Unfortunately, none of it was real. At 25 years old, I was having my first bipolar manic episode. I was experiencing psychosis, which in my case manifested itself in delusions of grandeur. I would soon be diagnosed with bipolar disorder. For many people with the illness, the symptoms begin in late adolescence. For some of us, we have no symptoms until some stressful event turns the bipolar switch in our bodies on permanently. I had a brand new type of brain and body chemistry, and I didn't even know it yet. And so begins your true story of a roller coaster ride of aspiring hopes and dreams and devastating losses and disappointments. What would you want us to know about your memoir? What's it about? My story is about a man who, who struggles in life, um, mostly with my identity because of all the things that I had been through, including bipolar disorder, and how I'd overcome all those things to find an identity I'm comfortable with and have a life that I like. Yeah, yeah. And if we look at the background, I mean, we'll get to the um, to the experience that you reference in uh, your prologue, but your childhood was not unfamiliar to, as a Canadian childhood. But that didn't mean there weren't challenges. And so you had already dealt with quite a number of things in growing up, finding your place in the world, and all that before there was any mental health issue. Would you want to say something about that, about some of the challenges that you had overcome in your childhood? Sure. Before I say that, I want to say uh, most of the people in my book are lovely people now, including me. <laughs> Of course, of course. <laughs> so uh, we've done some things, and probably everybody has done some things that nobody wants to remember, and unfortunately people are going to remember if they read my book. But I think the biggest thing was emotional abuse, which is something that people don't understand. I think you can understand different types of abuse because they're easy to conceptualize. Yeah. But emotional abuse is tough because the the abuser changes the programming in your in your brain, yeah. and you may never see them again for the rest of your life. But the abuse is uh, it yeah. continues, it continues. So when I said that I was, I'd been dragging it for years, and it finally felt like it was all gone. Yeah, that was the emotional abuse had clouded everything, and being a young, the youngest sibling of of two teenagers. My brothers were 
teenagers as I was a little guy, and teenagers aren't the most um, kind. <laughs> they're they're kind, but they're cruel as well, right? Yeah. yeah. Unintentionally, and our home was not a. It wasn't. It was hard for everybody. Yeah. Pretty much, so that suffering kind of ripples through everybody. So. Right from the get-go, I didn't feel great about myself. Yeah. And I really didn't know who I was. It was either I liked what my brothers liked or I should keep quiet, right? Yeah. And I had no confidence and it got, throughout my book, shitty things still happen, right? So yeah. it got worse. I started to feel used by my parents and at some point I just shut off. Yeah. Um, but there's a portion of my book where... I'm in that huge car accident and I walk into the church and I have glass all over me and my brother's like, what happened? And I just said, oh, we got in a car accident. And and I think that's the point where I was just, Alan in reality, emotional connection to the world's kind of cut off. There there is a, a, a powerful scene though, when you discovered football, (laughs) <laughs> because, right, you had put a lot of things, you'd shoved a lot of things down emotionally yep. because you had to kind of hide some of your emotional life away. Mm-hmm. But they they put some shoulder pads on you and put you on a field and you were dynamite. Yeah. It, that was such a strange experience. I grew up loving football. I was a really skinny kid. <laughs> That scene in my book is kind of fun to write, but I remember very well because it was such an extraordinary thing. Yep. My coach just like pushing and pushing, and eventually I was just like, I can't take this anymore. The rage just spewed out of me, yeah. and I could just, I, I had twice the strength, and I could just knock people over, and I could be as angry. If I couldn't tap into the anger, I'd get plowed. Yeah, but if yeah. I could figure out a way to get like angry and and just... It sounded like you could have obliterated the entire other team. Yeah, I just... <laughs> that's what I felt like. I just felt so... All of that anger just burst out of me. And, yeah. and I did well. For a guy my size, I did okay in contact sports. And mostly it was because of that anger. But that anger did not serve me well in, in the rest of my life. Like it, yeah. Anger has ruined my life in many ways. Including yeah. maybe even having bipolar disorder. Because I was angry. Anger was kind of part of the stew in yeah. in what happened that triggered my first episode. So yeah. anger has not served me well at all. Yeah. In fact, that scene, <laughs> my, now that I think about it, that may have really, that really hurt my life in a lot of ways. Feeling powerful because I was angry. Yeah. yeah. But I, so in, in reading your memoir, I felt with you your liberation when finally you boarded the plane and went off to the University of Victoria. Yeah. That, I mean, you're just, even reading it, I was breathing a sigh of relief because because not going into all the specifics of the stresses of your home life, um, but you were leaving a very stressful environment where yeah. adults were actually putting a lot on you as a little guy as you were growing up yeah. that a little guy shouldn't have to handle. And to come out from under that and to go off to university, like I was with you. It was like, wait, Alan, you go. <laughs> Except that I knew where the story went. <laughs> but it was so lovely. To, and then when you come back, 
you could almost see a kind of vocational arc beginning to present itself because you came back, I guess, for the summer and wound up at, as a, a counselor at a, a summer camp where they called you Thor. Now, that may have not been for the reasons that you might have hoped, but yeah. it was also recognizing some strength in you. Right. When you were working with the kids, say a little bit about that summer, because that was also kind of a turnaround, I think. Yeah, that summer was the funnest summer I think I've ever had. All we did was play sports and hang out with kids and sing songs. And, you know, Brian, I never thought about it. But, yeah, that was a very cool summer. Like, I felt part of a really good, good, strong, strong group. And... Yeah, I hadn't had a time to think about that, but it was a very freeing moment because yeah. I left. I, I took the power to leave and not go back because that that when I got back to living one on one with my dad, I just couldn't do it anymore, yeah. and yeah. I just I just couldn't I couldn't stay there. Yeah, and for once, I had the ability to make a choice to not be there, and that choice may not have seemed great like it wasn't the most modern clean camp or anything but i was so happy to be there because yeah. that comes through too that yeah. comes through in your writing that that it was really quite a lovely time and the kids were a part of it there was something about you and kids that was yeah. quite like with the with the kids you actually could feel useful and important yeah that was just, it was such a great job. I, that was that job actually inspired me to go on to do social work jobs yeah. with with kids and and looking out for kids and helping them have better lives and protecting kids. Yeah. Because that was the job I realized how extraordinary children are and how how innocent they are and how well it's just like this is a camp out in the middle of nowhere and the way they looked at it with awe and uh yeah. The way they experienced the whole thing was, yeah, it was a magnificent thing to be a part of. And they were so happy and we just played sports and did things together. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. Did, did that open the door of possibility for you to go off to Japan where you were going to teach English for a year? It sounds like that was like a gap year. You're going to go and do that and then go back and finish your university degree. Um, is that how it worked? No. Uh, so second, first year was terrible. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> and not being in Calgary and not being at home. First year at university. was terrible. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, second year, I tried really, really hard, and it still didn't go well. And that was devastating for me. I never tried so hard at something and not have it go well, especially yeah. school stuff. And I had a friend who used to live in Japan. And I said, uh, I need to take a break. I need to do something. And he got me a job in yeah. Japan. My first job after that was actually with adults. Okay, but it was all it, it was, uh, but it was teaching English. Teaching English with adults. Yes. And then I came back and finished my degree, and I went back again to teach kids. Yeah. Who are much better at learning language, by the way, than adults. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because they're probably not as self-conscious. They're not as self-conscious, and they don't fight you over it or anything. They just learn it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about when you... So you went to Japan, and you were drawn not only to the possibilities of, of teaching, but you got very interested in Japanese culture 
you ended up marrying a Japanese woman. Mm -hmm. And the dream began to be planted for you becoming a translator. Mm -hmm. So talk about some of that, because suddenly this was, it was a life far from your home in Calgary, but it was a life that was offering itself to you. Oh, I don't know if I can talk about that. <laughs> I had an emotional reaction to that question. Okay. That, uh, yeah, that really sucked because, um, yeah, I actually, after a while, I started to not think about this. <laughs> so okay. going back, I, uh, when I came back from Japan, my confidence level had even jumped another leap because I had, I was pretty good at learning Japanese and speaking Japanese. And I loved it. Like yeah. the concept of being able to speak a foreign language in a, in a different country and have these words, Japanese words coming out of my mouth was, yeah. it was great. And the culture, I, I really loved the culture. It was kind. It really suited my personality. Yeah. Yeah. It really suited my personality because it, it wasn't aggressive. It was very, there were lots of apologies and people being generous and kind. You never felt like anybody was taking advantage of you because yeah. people were being very nice. And so to be able to be in that world, which seemed to fit more than Canada, yeah. Yeah. the Canadian culture, and to have like a, a gift almost to be able to speak the language pretty good after a year, I was sold. And when I came back, yeah. people... I would ha wouldn't have any problem meeting people in parties or anything because I was very proud of being able to do that. And then yeah. I knew that I needed to finish my degree and go back to Japan and get back into the culture I love and the language. I, I was really passionate about the language. Yeah. I just, I loved learning new words. I used to go to 7-Eleven just to bug the guy to teach me <laughs> vocabulary. <laughs> I'd be like, what's this? And he'd be like, you know, he'd roll his eyes and he'd tell me, pick up something else by random. What's this? <laughs> I remember the, actually the first time I did that, I was so excited when I first learned the, the phrase, like, what is this? Yeah. And I went to a, I went to a bakery and I found this pastry that I couldn't figure out what it was. So I asked the guy, what is this? And I was so excited. <laughs> and when he explained what it is, that was when I realized you need to understand the answer. <laughs> But, but so I loved the language, and yeah. after that, I was hooked. And yeah. when I came back to Canada, I like I just they gave me credit for two years of Japanese. I graduated, and I just wanted to go back as fast as I could. Yeah. And when you did go back, you ended up teaching in a junior high school. Yeah. Um, and this is where things get tricky because there was some stress associated with that job. Yeah. Um. And it was when you were given a, a kind of a, a large uh, project where you were told, take the ball and run with it. And this was like a unique yeah. project just for you to do because you didn't feel you were being used as much as you could have been in the school. Mm -hmm. And something happened. And it's clear in your writing, like you allow, you allow the story to tell, like you don't say what's going on, but... What the reader can see is your mind is getting pulled into the possibilities that were be pre being presented. Here, you come up with some solutions to these ideas. You go ahead. Run with it. My goodness, you ran with it. 
and it opened some kind of portal for you into what we might call a manic phase. Oh, we definitely call it a manic phase. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So t- tell me about that. Yeah. So that's where the where I wonder if the anger piece is what kind of, like that football moment yeah. may have contributed to this problem because I don't even, I don't remember what started it, but I was furious. I was in the I was in the in the staff room and I was angry. It must have been something about them not using me enough. And I went to call the Board of Education. It's another guy who's from Calgary. And he's like, well, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm not good. Like, like I've had those football kind of chemicals going in my my body. And I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to cause a scene. I don't want to do anything. And he's like, no, we don't want, nobody wants you to do that. So I'm going to send you some work, almost in quotation marks, that I've been working on. Say you have to go to the computer room, because nobody has laptops back in those days. God, that makes me feel old. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And uh, go to the computer room and work on it. And nobody had ever asked me to do that type of task anymore. Like All through school, I was kind of treated as a lazy sort of student and uh, who didn't try hard enough, but who knows what he could have capable of. Maybe even not a very bright person at all because he doesn't get fantastic grades. Mm -hmm. And so here was somebody who said, okay, these are problems I am working on that require intelligence to fix. Do you think you can fix this? Nobody had ever asked me that question before. And I saw that and I was just like, wow, my brain can do these things like i can i can produce ideas i can come up with solutions and and he was working on an evaluation program and he didn't know what to do with it and i made this massive amount of work and faxed it to him the next day and he was astonished and i kept going on more and more of that energy combined with how angry i was with everybody yeah and that's when the uh, liftoff started it was when the energy of that combined with the the newfound energy of being able to use an intelligence I didn't even know I had in creativity I didn't know I had that that's the uh, that's what caused the liftoff and every every manic episode I've ever had has something to do with me and my ideas and my intelligence starting off somewhere good and then and taking off and taking off the background to that too is interesting because your marriage was unraveling Oh yeah, and so there was all the stress that you described, which which we don't have to get into the details of that. But of course, the breakup of a marriage is a stressful thing, mm-hmm. and you were dealing with that as well because your ex, your partner, was not doing so well no. with your separation, and you felt guilty and responsible for that. So you had an emotional pull there, and some, and the emotional pull a frustration of your job where they weren't using you enough yeah. that was clear and it wasn't your fault it was like yeah. it sounded like the the japanese teachers did not want an english speaking uh, westerner in the classroom yeah, I don't because know if i made them all lo- consulting <laughs> 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 but it's like they didn't want to look bad or yeah. something but anyways you had something at home something at work and this this task this work on the evaluation uh, system that you're uh, superior in the education system gave to you, gave you that all of your energy got focused into that. Yeah. To the to the point where you describe. I mean, it wasn't just 
it wasn't just limited to this this work project he gave you because you began conceiving great possible ideas with the coming of the internet and you were going to be a wealthy man and if anyone had any brains they would follow you <laughs> right yeah. you could just hear the manic yeah so were you i i assume you were writing to your family members or speaking to them giving them these yeah ideas. i was i had zero uh perception of time and that they're in canada and i since having other manic episodes, you don't really realize how frequently you're talking to people because you forget it as soon as yeah. you've done it. So I imagine I was calling them frequently all over like 24 hours a day, every single one of them, because you don't need to deal with anything now because I've figured out life. So yeah. why would you need to work or do anything? Just like, why are you even waiting? Yeah. <laughs> you should yeah. be here. You should be here. And all our problems are solved. I figured it out. Well... They flew all the way to Japan yeah. to be there. And you thought, what you, you describe it, when they all showed up, suddenly they're there. What did you think the agenda was? Yeah, I thought we were all on board. Like, finally, it took you guys long enough. So On board with your project with my, and your ideas. Yeah, with my ideas. It took you long enough. Let's, good, let's get started. Let's go to Thailand and finish this up. But that's not why they were there. No, that was <laughs> Why were they there, Alan? Yeah, yeah, they were there to uh, to drug me and bring me back to Canada because yeah. they they had been consulted with some other doctors and they knew that I had bipolar disorder. And it it was an intervention. It was a true intervention. Yeah, like they wrestled you to the ground. Yeah, they had to tackle me and yeah, and inject me and bring me back. But yeah, I had no idea. Like I had no like when I say it was the happiest day I was so happy yeah. and I you know everything I'd been through was rough as a kid and all yeah. of that and yeah. finally it seemed like I'd finally got a handle on life yeah. and to wake up in a psychiatric like to wake up on the psych ward and back in Calgary back in Calgary of all places it was was such a shock <laughs> yeah. I when they got there I thought of course they're here this is and I tried to explain them to them in my my psychotic phase. I was like, uh, I had a thing going with the with the ball, and I thought I had this concept of a ball. And when you have the ball, you make add. You've read about this. Yep. <laughs> you you yep. add ideas to it, and you pass it back to me, and that's how we ideas grow. Ideas grow, and so. that's how we'll have. So when they came. They tried to communicate with me using that type of vocabulary. So I thought, yeah, everybody's on board. They've got the ball. Yeah, but somebody's got the ball. Somebody's got the ball. And my brother eventually, he actually did say he had the ball because he figured, I think he thought, well, maybe we'll make some progress if we just say that we have it. And then when my, my response after that was, okay, what do we do next? I think that's when they realized that. And at some point, you started doing karate kicks yeah. in the middle of the living room. Yeah, because I'd figured out. Somehow I'd figured out, you start doing random things and think they're brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I was sitting in the room and I thought, oh, I don't know how the idea came up, but I figured out, figured out in quotation marks how to like strike. I practiced striking into one corner of the room and then to the other corner of the room and in my head, I made this whole... After and I'd never taken any, any martial arts at this time. I just and they were all sitting around watching you. Yeah, they were all sitting and watching me, and and uh, yeah, that must have been hard for them. 
I well, never thought about it. And, and a hard, we'll, we'll come back and talk about what you do with some of those uh, memories. But I, for the moment, you've just got us uh, with you to the psych ward in Calgary. And it, it is heartbreaking. Yeah, because a because number of things were going on. One was um, a feeling of denial. You were thinking, well, if they just let me go, I'll, I'll go back to Japan and I'll figure this out and I'll yeah. carry on with all my great plans. So there was denial. But there was also, and this is what's so heartbreaking, an increasing sense of loss. Yeah. Because Alan of Japan was somebody who was finding himself, finding his strengths and finding his place uh, in community and in the world without reference to family. And now because of the family's intervention, they've brought you back to become Alan of Calgary, yeah. the very person you were trying to run away from. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was not happy. I was furious. And I kept saying, okay, I get it. I I was wrong. Just send me back. I'll be, I admit I was wrong. Just, you know, just send me back. I'll be okay. And they they didn't yeah. understand what going back meant. Like, they didn't even know that I loved Japan that much and how much it, like, that was my life. So in one fell swoop, you lost your freedom and you lost your identity that you were building in, in Japan. I worked so hard to get. To right? get there. I worked really, really hard to get that. Yeah. You were in the care of the psych ward for how long? Three months. And during that time, of course, they would have been medicating you as well as, uh, you know, doing whatever. You said it was a whole progression of psychiatrists. It wasn't oh, one yeah. person. It wasn't, there wasn't one person you could kind of latch on to in good old, what I would call Rogerian style, where you could have one person to help you through it. Part of that was... Um, Bad luck because this is Christmas, uh, so uh, all the yeah, so it's the guys who have to work during Christmas, and uh, yeah, it was Christmas. I got an ornament because of it because I, I was in the psych ward during Christmas. They like gave a, us ornaments. Like a Christmas tree ornament. Yeah, they gave us Christmas tree ornaments as gifts. Do you still have it? You know, I don't. No, I don't have it. That's interesting that I don't. I probably didn't want to keep it. I was going to say, would you want a memento? <laughs> I think I like did that. keep something that I made in the occupational therapy class that took yeah. me, that, that was part of the evidence they used that I was not well. Yeah. So. When the day came... But that was terrible, that yeah. I had to see a different psychiatrist. And one, I mean, one says that you're fine, you can go back, and the next one says you're not fine, and uh, that was not good. That was unlucky too. Yeah. But during the, that three months, it sounded like you began to settle into the routines, which actually day to day meant your meals were provided for you. You didn't have to, you didn't have stress and worry about keeping body and soul together. And then came the day when they said, you can go. And when you write, that's the other part, like that there's several parts in the memoir which are heartbreaking, but that one takes the cake. Because they're saying you can go, and all of a sudden you're expected to function. You describe not even being able to put your belongings into a bag. Tell us if you're if you're okay telling us about that scene. I think people need to appreciate the confusion that comes when the system is saying we're gonna we're gonna look after you and take care of you. We're not gonna let you make decisions on your own. Oh, until today, <laughs> and now here you go. So I never thought of it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Until today. You know, when I wrote that portion of my book, 
I bawled my guts out. Mm-hmm. And it was so hard. And I cried so hard. Yeah. And even talking about it now makes me emotional. And even I've when I've done readings and I've read that portion of my book, it still bothers me. Yeah. But I think it's kind of healing in a way. And I actually really love the writing of that portion of my book because it's, yeah. it's uh, yeah, I like the writing. of. If I make a submission and they ask for a portion of my book, that's the portion I send. Very powerful. But it was, it was an extraordinary experience. I, yeah, I remember starting to become quite comfortable at, in the hospital at some point. I started to think it was vacation. And when they told me that when you get out of here, you're not going back to Japan, I was devastated that day, but I went back to, to being part of the vacation. And that day, and then I was starting to feel really, really awful, right? It's the cycle of the illness. And when things were really bad, that's when they decided that now you're safe to go home because you're not manic anymore. And, and they didn't give me any warning. I don't know how you warn somebody for something like that, but it wasn't something I was expecting. Yeah. So I had some time, and this had become a routine where I had some time with my family on the weekend, and then I'd go back to the psych ward for Monday and go back to my routine of being on the psych ward, playing sports, going to groups, having tons of people to talk to. Um, yeah, I'd become, and constantly complaining I was there and I had no choice but to leave. And that day when they said, okay, you're going home, I, uh, yeah, wow. Yeah. It was, it was a shock because I thought that would be the thing that I'd been complaining about all all this time. And yeah. I thought people would, uh, I thought to be happy, but I was not happy. I was not happy at all. Uh, you describe quite a, a compassionate, lovely scene with the nurse, because I guess they had left you to gather your things and your brother was waiting. He yeah. was going to wait, you know, he was waiting in the waiting room to take you out and take you home. And um, after about an hour, you said, the nurse came and called your name and you could see her shoes beneath the, the drapes pulled around your bed. And she came in and, and you had not been able to, you were standing and she helped you pack your bag. And I, and, and, and there was great compassion in that, Yeah. but, but tremendous sadness. Like, are, are you, as a reader, I'm thinking, are, are you sure he's ready for this? <laughs> like he can't even pack his bag. You know, and that was so strange. Like I remember, I was so emotional and so stuck, and I, uh, I just my, I just couldn't do it. You're I really, yeah. I just paralyzed. I just couldn't get my hands to do it. Yeah. So um, fortunately, now we haven't talked about this, but you went to live with your grandmother, your nana, uh, who was a constant through your life. Like yeah. she, like you knew unconditional love from her. If you knew it from nowhere else, you knew it from her. Yeah, um, definitely. That was the, she, my, she saved me in many ways. She was just a lovely person to me. She, uh, yeah, she was fantastic. 
But then you begin, then you describe, because as you say, this is the, the, in the terms of the cyclical nature of the disorder, you are now headed away from a bipolar manic phase into a depressive phase. Describe a little about what that is like. Oh, that's, a, that's the most awful hell I've ever experienced. And I haven't experienced it that bad than I did my very first one. It's like being paralyzed but able to move. <laughs> having the ability to move your limbs but being so exhausted that the thought of moving them is just yeah. too much. And so tired. And everything seems dark. Food tastes like cardboard. There really doesn't seem to be a reason to live because there's no possibility for enjoyment or... I Yeah... I think I've written or said that you can appreciate, uh, you know what colors are, but you can't appreciate their beauty. You know what tastes, you can identify tastes, tastes, but you can't, um, you can't enjoy them. You can't enjoy anything. So it's kind of, why would you want to continue living? And on top of that, like part of the illness is it gives you negative thoughts, like you know, killing yourself is a good idea. And it gives you all of these horrible ne negative thoughts. So yeah. on top of not being able to move, feeling exhausted, and enjoy pleasure, you get the addition of negative thoughts in your own head and the frustration of the people around you. Yeah. Because if somebody has not experienced that themselves, they would wonder, Alan, why don't you just get out of bed? Yeah. Alan, why don't you just get started in the day? People say that to you a lot. Yeah. yeah. And yet you've described to me that when you're in the depths of that kind of depression, just the decision to get out of bed and start the day can be the most difficult thing you will have to do that whole day. Yeah, absolutely. That became my first goal. <laughs> get up, yeah. Just get up. Well, my first goal was sit up in bed yeah. and then get out of bed. Yeah, it's an awful experience. And you get you start to become afraid of going outside because... Yeah. Of everything that goes on in your head. It's, it's terrible. Is that also when you've talked about the stigma of the disorder being how other people react to you? Like there's a stigma attached. Would that feed that fear of going out? Absolutely. Oh, it feels it feeds lots of negative things. I mean, yeah, you feel judged by the world. And I think in 1995, it was worse, too. Like, in 1995, the perception of people that are mentally ill, I think, was way worse than it is now. Yeah. So I felt a tremendous amount of shame. And the shame that there was something wrong with you? With something wrong with me. Yeah. And, it, you know, people around me, my family members, my friends were frustrated that I wasn't able to just bounce back up. And, yeah. and yeah. It's awful time. And, you know, I've and, been through a lot of horrible things, and that was the most worst wow. awful thing I've ever been through. The depression. My very first depression. Yeah. Yeah. Um so I don't want to make it I don't want to make it worse. <laughs> no, no. But but, uh, but I, what I, what I'm thinking <laughs> what I'm thinking of is there's also you've also talked about the shame connected with the memories 
So when you were thinking of your manic, when you were in your manic phase, you said and did things. You said you weren't, you weren't uh, very nice to your family members. That the, and and these all things became regrets mm-hmm. later on. So not only is there shame about you know like there's something wrong with me, but there's also that kind of burden of oh my god, did I say that? Did I really? Oh, did, did I really treat that person like that? Yeah. Right? There's all that added on. If you talk to anybody who has bipolar disorder, this is something we all have a hard time with. Yeah. And the only healing that comes is through talking to each other because it's yeah we have those images we know. It was because we're not well, but we remember the facial expressions of the people who suffered through it. Yeah. And what the consequences? What began to help pull you out of it? Um, to give you enough hope to begin to carry on. You know, my very first one. It was my grandmother, my nana. Uh, I think there was a really big turning point for me when uh, I'm sitting beside her on the couch and I'm exhausted and I tell her I can't do anything and all I want to do is sleep. And she reaches up and touches my face and says, well, just go sleep. And I think that's when things really started mm. to get to get better. So I think just having other people believe in you <laughs> is a big, yeah. big part of it. And her say, you know, you're tired. Go sleep. It's okay. You're not so well. No, no judgment. Just acceptance no. of whatever you're feeling. That's what you're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Just go to sleep. So after that, yeah, you, you start. <laughs> losses is a big thing when you have bipolar disorder, and the only way to recoup those losses are keep going, yeah. keep throwing punches, and it may not seem they may seem like they're they're not doing anything. But eventually, after a really long time, some momentum starts to form. So it began with the unconditional love of your grandmother. Mm-hmm. But you've also talked about the importance of peer groups. of, And you've, you've mentioned that just being able to talk with other people who understand, who've been there. Yeah, the massive step comes from peer support. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have the life I have now if it wasn't for peer support. Yeah. If... If somebody would have introduced me to peer support after my first episode, I would have my life would have been different. Peer support is it's, it's magical. I've often said it's magical. Uh, that was not part of the experience the first time you were no. in psychiatric care. There was no peer support group, no, and, and nothing suggested when you went out. No, I don't even know if it existed. But that wasn't that have. long ago. That I mean, Maybe surely you'd think that because yeah, it's so that, important. No, the, well, it definitely was not there. I yeah. found it years later after, uh, yeah, after professionals had suggested that I go there. Yeah. That was when I was like 40, I think, but it was never, yeah, no, nobody ever mentioned it. So peer support, but also presumably constant or at least regular contact with a um, occupational nurse or or a psychiatrist or someone who's monitoring whatever the chemical part of the imbalance is. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, you need a, a psychiatrist, which is a specialized doctor that yeah. handles medication. So there's a few things, there's lots of things that people with bipolar disorder have to do to stay, to stay well, to stay happy. Part of that is finding a good psychiatrist and being okay with being medicated and going through that lengthy process. 
And you could just do that and maybe seeing a social work to get um, some help with vocational things. But if you, and there are probably people doing really great at that, but the thing that I've seen impact, and maybe that's because of my job, I work in peer support yeah. with people who have bipolar disorder. I, I've never met any, I can think of two people who came to our group consistently and did not benefit from it, who didn't have like an incredible change in their life. And I've been doing it since 2012. I started coming to the group in 2008. I, I know what they look like. I know I know their names because they they're so so I I don't understand how so many people do it without having peer support. But yeah. peer support, especially that shame part I just talked about, yeah. Nobody else understands that like somebody else who's gone through. Yeah. yeah. And therefore it, it can normalize it and take off the pressure and the shame for you as an individual to go, yeah, everyone else in this room. Has felt has been through the same thing. We've actually laughed about it. Yeah, we're, we're like, oh my god, I can't believe I did that. And everybody laughs because everybody knows that that's just such a ridiculous, unbelievable experience. And then we can laugh about the the outrageous things that we've done and gone through. And yeah, you have also. Um, in the last number of years, not only have, do you work with uh, in the area of peer support yourself, but you've also launched some um, uh, initiatives th that are entirely your own. And I think you don't do that unless there's a measure of strength and confidence. So you have started a blog and a podcast, and they are reaching out to the community of people who suffer with bipolar disorder. So mm -hmm. say a little bit about, I mean, that must have been a huge step to say, we, we need something else. We need a way of connecting outside of our individual groups. Well, part of it was a tiny bit selfish because <laughs> I want to get my book published. Ah. So I needed an online presence. and uh, But I honestly, I feel a strong connection to anybody who has bipolar disorder. Yeah, um, I have tremendous amount of respect for anybody who has bipolar disorder because... I know what it takes to keep going, to keep having a life, to have those massive losses over and over again. So, and I've done it for so long. So if I could do a little bit to ease the pain of other people who suffered like I did, yeah. I'll do it. I'll I'll do anything I can to, to help other people. So my blog, Bipolar Weekly, is, it's pretty organic. I, like I... I think of stuff that I notice is difficult for me or somebody else I've met for who has bipolar disorder. And I write about the topic of one small thing that we do to get by or something that we have to think about. And there's a lot of those things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the well is deep. So I, I like to write. So I put out there things that I, I think are really trying to help people who have it but i'm really happy that people who don't have it have found it yeah. helpful and i know people who have bipolar disorder say i get my family to read your blog yeah. so that they can understand what i go through and and that makes me ex extremely happy and and the same is true of the podcast because you interview people who have 
some direct connection. Often they're kind of in the helping professions or social workers or a doctor or a psychiatrist. Um, but you do the same. It's sort of like, here's some information that people need to know. And I have found that particularly enlightening for someone who does not have bipolar disorder to appreciate here, here's the, some of the, the basics that people need to understand about this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, a world that is better to people with bipolar disorder is also a world, a world that's better to me too. <laughs> so, just a better world. Uh, well, yeah, yeah I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's just a better world. So yeah. I try to put as much as I can out there to make things easier for me and make it easier for people who have bipolar disorder. So I always try to have like a little bent to it to help to create some understanding for people who have bipolar disorder. Yeah. Yeah. So you've seen a lot of people um, afflicted with the disorder who didn't see it coming one way or another and their lives were changed like yours. What would you say gives people, uh, where does it come from, the strength, the resilience? to be, Because I guess the honest truth is not everybody makes it. Yeah. I don't know. I think everybody tries, right? Uh some of it's what's in your cards. If um, if I didn't have a family, I could have easily been homeless and gone down a very darker path. Right. Or, so some of it can be just the cards that you're dealt, right? Or some of it can be you could be trying your best, and this this illness will not it it will take you down either way. Could is it genetic? Do, do you think some people have? They don't say like it runs in families. I don't know why they just they can't outright say it's genetic, and it's probably getting closer to. But it it runs in families. And and would resilience also be genetic? I mean, some people just better able to find hope. You know, I I was kind of considering this question, and I don't think so. I don't think so. If you have bipolar disorder and you're listening to this, there's hope. There, yeah. <laughs> there, and it has nothing to do with who who you are, where you're born, or because I've seen it. Yeah. Like I've seen people just drag themselves into our room, and they find their life again. Yeah. And most of that is just the power of being able to laugh with people who have psychosis and just having this connection. And we don't, it's not like it's a, a therapeutic group where we say, you're going to learn these skills. Yeah, we just hang out for a couple of hours. Yeah. And I don't think that there's anybody who has bipolar disorder who can't come back from the darkness. Hmm. I honestly don't. Never. Yeah. And I know some people believe that, you know, there's, it's not going to get better. So, Maybe I'm better off and everybody else is better off if I, I'm not here. And maybe that's when they choose to die by suicide. But it can always get better. I've never met, I've met two people that it didn't get better since 2008. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I don't even think those two people may not have necessarily even had bipolar disorder. So maybe the key is find a group, right? Yeah. And maybe not even people with um, illness uh, who have bipolar disorder, just anybody. Don't lose hope. If you're, if you're in that place where you lose hope, and I've been there, and that was part of the thing I'd never experienced until my first depressive episode is losing hope. 
that's a dark, awful place. Yeah. That's a very dark, awful place. So if you can find a peer support group, there's hope right there. Hope's yeah. right in the room. And if you just heard my voice and I gave you hope, then you're in the gate. Wow. Yeah. Tell me now for you, what's a good day? What's a good day for me? Yeah. Ah, oh, I have lots of great days now. If you have darkness overtake your life, the beauty of the light is extraordinary. Uh, and colors, know. when you mentioned colors before. Yeah, if you know what it's like to have it all taken away from you, the experience of having it is just that much more precious. I came into the space, right? The cave. The cave. And you need a better name, man, because this, no, <laughs> this is not a cave. Even though the audio kind of sounds like it, but I mean, all the extraordinary art. and It's just an incredible room. And I think maybe part of it is because I know what it would be like to walk in here and feel nothing. Hmm. Absolutely nothing. And I, when I walked in here, I thought, wow, what an extraordinary, extraordinary room. Look at the colors and the shapes and the things. And... I know what it's like not to have that. Yeah. So I still have bad days, but I know just keep going and it'll come around. But for the most part, I'm pretty happy guy. Maybe happier than most. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, you laugh a lot. It's one of <laughs> it's one of the things that kind of connects us. Yeah. Uh, I want to go. I want to finish where we started, which is uh, with your your memoir, Brain Betrayal: The Allen They Never Met. Tell me about the title you chose. Who is the Alan they never met? The title is about, well, the betrayal obviously is I'd gone all that way and yeah. my brain betrayed me. Yeah. But the Alan they never met is because I had to keep reinventing myself, right? There was yeah. a Alan, there was a Calgary Alan, which seemed like a dark place that I didn't like. There was this Victoria Alan, which I was proud of, was happy comfortable with himself and then there was a level even beyond that the 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 alan in japan and the alan that's embraced japan yeah. and none of those people know me yeah. like nobody who knows the japan alan knows the calgary alan nobody who who knows the victoria alan knows the. there's no none of these people ever met me yeah they never met that version of alan so that's that's uh that's where that comes from, and that's how the story comes to its resolution. And th there is a sense in which um, this is true of all of us. We reinvent ourselves every day we get out of bed. Mm -hmm. Here's this day. Who am I today? What does this day require of me, right? There's mm -hmm. that too. There's, there's a kind of a freeing notion of, and we're not held to our pasts. No. We can, today is a day of uh, recreation. And that may take a long time and a lot of work to get to not being held to your past, but you're not. Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you think you can't, you can. <laughs> yeah. So we've said that uh, if there are listeners who have been inspired by this but feel personally connected to mm -hmm. what you're talking about, like that they're wondering about their own mental health and what they might do, we've said if you'd like to be in touch with Alan, get in touch with me at uh, mysiccaveman53 at gmail.com, and that's in the show notes. And I'll put you in touch with Alan. But if you want to hear his blog and, uh, and the podcast, because it's, it's a, it's a bi-weekly blog, but every so often there's a podcast thrown in there. So, you have, so how, Alan, can people find you online? My blog is bipolarweekly.com. 
and the podcast is called The Bipolar Disorder Moment. And you can listen to it on a lot most platforms. It's on Spotify. If you go to my blog, there are, there are links to finding it. Ellen, thank you for your willingness to tell your story. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And I even got a cup. It's a mug. A mug, pardon me. I misspoke. It's not a cup, it's a mug. What a pleasure. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for Alan's story. I am heartened to witness the resilience of the human spirit, as I hope you are as well. If you want to comment on what you've heard, you can leave a post in the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. If you want to contact Alan himself, he would be pleased to hear from you. Just write to me and I'll put you in touch with him. In our next episode, we encounter perhaps the greatest betrayal of all, a father of his own daughter. Jan Handy endured an entire childhood of abuse at the hands of her own father, a clergyman. The shame and disorientation might have destroyed her. Instead, she has spent the rest of her life attending to her own wounds and supporting other women who tell similar stories, discovering in the process what she calls the secret tribe of abuse survivors. It's an awful story, but it's also a hopeful one. I hope you'll join me. Until then, I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. But it's too